Hey gang, thanks for tuning in this week. Before we start, I wanted to alert you to the fact that the audio in this episode seems to have gone a little haywire, and while it doesn't affect the actual interview itself, the opening and ending segments sound like they were recorded in a loud bus depot in 1997, so I don't know why, but let's just agree as friends to ignore that and focus on how great the interview is. All right, thanks. Roll the music. Thanks for tuning into House Things, a podcast and a radio show from the David A. Howe Public Library right here in Wellsville, New York. I'm Nick Gunning. My co-host today is uh, the director of the Fred and Harriet Taylor Memorial Library. She's your friend and mine, Sally Jacoby Murphy. Sally, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Are you really? I, I am glad to You be seem here. happy, but I just want to know for sure <laughs> that that's not just like a schmaltzy showbiz thing. You're really happy to be here? I am really happy to be here. I mean, it's like the end of the day on Friday. We're going to talk yeah. about awesome things. I know. How could I not be happy? <laughs> I know. I know. To Sally's point, today I'm going to be interviewing best-selling author Stephen Barnes, who's had quite a history in screenwriting, in, in novel writing. He's he's just had a, he's had an interesting career, and we get into every aspect of it in, in a pretty exciting interview that we have coming up. Before we get there, Sally, I want to know uh, what's up in what's up in your world. Where's where's your bookmark these days? Oh wow! Yeah, so I just finished the book Just Us, which I think I was I had just started last time we talked. No, oh. um, but it's an exploration on whiteness in America. Okay, good. And I am currently reading the March series. We just got them in the library for in honor of Black History Month. Yeah. It's been out for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. John Lewis is one of the main collaborators on it, um, and obviously he has passed on by by now. But they're phenomenal graphics. They really novels. are. Yeah. Um, and this is my first time reading them, so I'm doing that. And I am. I've read I've read the first two of those, and I have the third one like on my coffee table at home right now, just oh, just nice. to finish up the series. Yep. That's a good plug, Sally. I know you didn't mean to, but I can't pass a segue like this. But right now here at the David A. Howe Public Library, we're passing out free copies of March Volume 1 to teens. So if you're a teen in the area, uh, even if you don't live right in Wellsville, if you want to swing by the David A. Howe Public Library, we've got a uh, copy of John Lewis's March Volume 1 for you to take home. That is awesome. And keep I'm forever. I'm jealous I'm not a teenager in Wellsville, New York. <laughs> well, it's a select group, Sally. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, what else you got on the docket? Um, well, and I'm just about to finish the education of Brett Kavanaugh. So. Oh yes, yes, you were reading that last time. Novel. I know it's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Have you read uh, any of the Angie Thomas books? Last week, uh, Malik and I were talking about On the Come Up, which was actually it was very good. I so I haven't, but it's uh, what is her first one that's slightly more famous? Yeah, The Hate You Give. Yeah, the Hate You Give was the one that really. Yeah. really made the splashes and concrete rose which is actually a prequel to the hate you give is the one that's new in 2021 and they're all they all share a setting but i don't think there's any character crossover between hate you give and on the come up gotcha yeah i i haven't actually read the hate you give i have seen the movie they did like oh okay hbo adaptation of it a couple of years ago yeah but actually weirdly my brother he is cultivating some different reading lists for applications for jobs he's okay he's hoping to be an Mm -hmm. english professor um and he was asking me about that because he's interested in adding it to some of his classes okay that's pretty cool but 
I would uh, I would also recommend Dear Martin, which is kind of a similar topic of The Hate You Give. Uh, that's by author Nick Stone. Um, I read that and really enjoyed it. That one I did read too. And oh, okay. I also enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also, they're both YA and written about the same time. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. helpful too. Yeah. It's interesting that one features a woman and one features a man. Yeah. I think that's kind of an interesting dichotomy for like yep. exploring race and blackness in America. So. Yep. Yeah. Fun fact, I tried to get Nick Stone on the podcast, but she is oh. booked solid. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, uh, I'll have to circle back around on that one because I would really like to talk to her. Fair enough. One day you'll be famous enough and yeah. you'll be... Do you have any idea who I am is what I'll say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, finished a, I finished a J.T. Ellison book called Lie to Me. J.T. Ellison is the number one choice for our friends of the library president, Chris Bailey. She's the one who was like, you, you got to read this author. So I did. And that one, I can confirm, J.T. Ellison is going to be my special interview for Women's History Month in March. So read up now. She's got a new book dropping in March, and we're going to be talking uh, later in the month. So I finished that and enjoyed it. It's a very twisty, reminded me a little bit of Gone Girl, sort of in that vibe, you know, where you're seeing the story from a couple different perspectives and uh, very twisty. So it was fun. I feel like I haven't really like sat down and read that kind of twisty thriller in a while. So it was kind of nice to get back to that. That I've been reading some graphic novels. I've been reading uh, Firestorm. I have not heard of Firestorm. This is kind of an interesting character. He he has like his powers are like nuclear, and usually he has to pair with somebody else. In the old days, he he paired with this like uh, science professor or whatever. This volume that I'm reading right now follows a new character, and he merges with whoever is in the area. So it's like he'll merge, sometimes he'll merge with a villain or whatever, and they'll be kind of like trapped in this headspace. So like while superheroics are going on, his mind is sort of trapped with the mind of this person that he's merged with. And it's making for some pretty interesting stories. Hmm. I don't know, we have a lot of this in the collection, Firestorm, if anybody is curious about it. But yeah, that's my, that's my reading at the moment. I'm also, I'm going back and forth on reading Barack Obama's Promised Land. Oh, nice. I'm reading like chunks at a time and then doing something a little lighter and going back. So that's been, mm-hmm. that's been fun. It's keeping me busy. Anything yeah. else exciting going on? You watch anything good? You're always watching weirdo stuff. <laughs> well, so you got me. Uh, yeah, I am always watching weirdo stuff. I know. Right. So I got a cold. Who knows oh. where it came from? Yeah. Because seen practically no one. Sure. But Me I too, man. I was cold. sick. Oh. It's super, it's super not fun to be sick during Mm-mm. COVID because no. not only are you sick, but you're also terrified. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you, Sally, the absurd things I've typed in. You know, I'm like, <laughs> hot feet, symptom of COVID? Nope, that's fine. That's fine. No matter what it is, I'm like, symptom of COVID? At this point, the, the search bar just fills it out for me. It's like, yeah, I know what, I, I know what you want, you hypochondriac. No, it's not a symptom of COVID. Live your life. Yeah, fair, fair. Yeah. Well, I was pretty certain that whatever I was experiencing was just a cold, but mm-hmm. I nevertheless had to stay home from work and yes. get COVID tested and yes. all that jazz just to make sure. We actually had to close the library for several days. Ooh. Yeah, end of January, early February, we had to, because uh, we had a positive case, and we had to like deep clean everything. And so, yeah, yeah. But fortunately, I mean, we caught it early. There was no like cascade of other people getting it. And now the library's sparkly clean. So, you know, yeah, and everybody's yeah. recovering nicely. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's the thing. I I realize, like, I'm the weak link in the library, (laughs) so I have to be, like, sort of... Because if I got COVID for whatever reason, everyone has to get tested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I overlap with everyone. Yeah. Which is not a fun 
It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah, it's not fun pressure to bear, but, you know, whatever. But at any rate, so I was home a lot. I ended up binge-watching, like, four straight seasons of Say Yes to the Dress. It's (laughs) very high cinema, high stakes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Character development up the wazoo. Yeah. But it was fun. But then, so, for this podcast, I got the CBS trial thing. Yeah. And then watched the episode so that I was prepped for this. Yes. And then I really got hooked on it. So now I've been binging the new Twilight Zone series. I need to go back because, like, we finished season one and then we we jumped to the episode that, that my guest today, Steve mm-hmm. Barnes, and his wife, Tanana Rabdu, wrote. Uh, we jumped to that one and watched it and really enjoyed it. Uh, but now, now we got to go back and catch up with the rest of season two. So I'm glad you're liking it. Oh, yeah, it's great. It reminds me a little bit of, like, Twilight Zone meets Black Mirror. Okay. Like, is on Netflix. Well, that makes I'm sense. Yeah. Like, I, I like this. Mm-hmm. Steve Barnes uh, also wrote for the 80s incarnation of, of the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. So I've probably seen other ones. You probably have. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you definitely have. I have to ask, have you been watching any of the new Star Treks while you have CBS All Access? Not yet, but I okay. mean... Okay, that's on the list. When I... I mean, I'm, like, done with the, with the first season of Twilight Zone. It's been probably, uh, I'd say, 24 to 48 hours. Wow. So <laughs> I'm doing this intensely, but I am at the beginning of said free trial. Okay. So Star Trek might be next. Pace also, yourself. Also, the Star Trek Below Decks. Lower Decks. Lower yes. Decks. Thank you. <laughs> it's the reality TV show is Below Decks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Star Trek show... Um, but yeah, but I'm excited about that because it looks really good. I don't know if you noticed in uh, the CBS app, but you have the option to toggle it into black and white for the Twilight Zone. I did not know that. Yes. Interesting. Yep. So it's kind of fun to watch them that way too. That is fun. Because they're so crisp and clear. Yeah. Uh, Malik and I were talking last week about things we've we've been watching and I'm just, I'm still kind of in a drought. I don't have like a show, you know, there was a bunch of shows that we were like, can't wait for the next episode, but I don't have one of those at the moment and that's a hard place to be in. Oh, it's such a hard place to be in. So, I hear you. Yep. I wish I had something for you, but... Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for trying. <laughs> All right. Did we cover you? Is that everything? Is that everything on your watching and reading list? I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, let's see what's going on with the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. Look into the future to see what it proves. It's time for book news. Okay, at number 10, we have 20 weeks on the list. We have Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. A failed bank robber holds a group of strangers hostage at an apartment open house. Interesting. Yes. Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline. In a sequel to Ready Player One, Wade Watts discovers a technological advancement and goes on a new quest. Hmm. What's your relationship with these books? I know your wife is a fan. My wife was a fan of the first one. She's actually a little scared to read the second one because yeah, I hear that. the first one. So I hear that. Um, but I'd say she is not the demographic that one would think would have loved the first one. Mm-hmm. So I say, I, I have not read them myself, but I say if they are at all interesting to you, go for it because it. she loved it. Dive in. Yep. Yeah. At number eight, with four weeks on the list, we have Neighbors by a known living vampire Danielle Steele. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Danielle. A Hollywood recluse's perspective changes when she invites her neighbors into her mansion after an earthquake. Hmm. Sounds kind of fun. Yeah. I'd watch that movie. I'd watch that movie. I'd uh, that book. Yeah. <laughs> Number seven, with 18 weeks on the list, we have Nicholas Sparks in The Return. A doctor serving in the Navy. He's probably a smoke show, if I had to guess. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Real chiseled. 
dimples, probably. probably. <laughs> uh, serving in the Navy in Afghanistan, goes back to North Carolina, where two women change his life. Oh, my God. And they go to a Bojangles. <laughs> no. <laughs> you used to live in North Carolina, Sally. Yes. You got any uh, colorful North Carolina anecdotes you want to share with uh, Nicholas Sparks fans? Were you ever swept away by a, a ruggedly handsome uh, longshoreman? <laughs> you know, I can't say that I have been, but okay. also being queer probably right. helped save me right. from that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it is mm-hmm. sort of a, if you live in North Carolina, that may happen to you. Yeah, it's uh, possible. It's possible. Yeah. So you... North Carolina is the most northern of the southern states while still being the south <laughs> i think i think that's what it says on their license plates if i remember that right i think that's the state you motto feel like, yeah, you feel like you hit virginia and you're like i'm in the south now mm-hmm. and then you get to north carolina and you're like am i in the south <laughs> <laughs> i've never but spent a lot of time in the Carolinas, so i can't yeah i can't mean tell it, it's it's a good place but i'm happy to be back in new york okay <laughs> Number six, we have The Push by Ashley Adrain. A devastating event forces a mother who questions her child's behavior and her own sanity to confront the truth. Mm. Number five, in a 126-week-long snooze fest, we have Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. In a quiet town on the North Carolina, we're back. We are back, coast, in the 1969. A young woman who survived alone in the marsh becomes a murder suspect. Crazy. Any comments? I mean, I have not read it yet, but I feel like every week that it's on here, I both need to read it more and want to read it less. Yeah. So, well, there's that. It's a quick read. You'll get through it. I probably should. I'd kind of be curious what you think about it. Yeah. I know I've been very tight-lipped about my feelings on it, so. (laughs) Number four, 14 weeks on the list, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, a Faustian bargain, comes with a curse that affects the adventure Addie LaRue has across centuries. I do like a Faustian bargain. Do you? I would not accept a Faustian bargain, but you like the concept? <laughs> I like the concept. Okay, but not as it would apply to your own personal life. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I might take it. but You would? Not. Oh, you'd consider it. Okay. <laughs> Number three, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Nora Seed finds a library beyond the edge of the universe that contains books with multiple possibilities of the lives one could have lived. Well, it seems like we have to read that. I guess we do, yeah. Or just watch Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Probably. What's the the Macaulay Culkin? Home Alone. (laughs) No, the Page Reader, is that it? Oh, no, 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 it's not. The Page Master? Page Master? Page Master, that's it. I was not allowed to watch that as a child. Looked too creepy. I've never seen it. <laughs> it's a good 90s romp. You know what? I just recently showed my son 90s Macaulay Culkin Richie Rich. Uh, Still holds up. Still pretty strong. Nice. Still pretty strong. <laughs> Christy Nebersole, uh um Richard Herman. It's a good it's a good cast. David I Is mean, that his name? What is that guy's name? Edward Herman. Edward Herman. That's right. I would not know. But I, I mean I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid, but I'm yeah. to know it holds up. No time like the present. Number two, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I have read this one. Oh, have you? Not a competition, but I, but I have read it. <laughs> this is our book club pick. This is our book club pick. I have mixed feelings about it. Hmm. I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, the lives of twin sisters who run away from a southern black community at age 16 diverge as one returns and the other takes on a different racial identity, but their fates intertwine. I think that's a misleading summary. I don't think that's truly what it's about. And so if you go in expecting that, you're going to be a little bit like, what? 
Number one, new this week, by, and I feel like it's been a minute on this author, James Patterson and James O'Born. I've not noticed uh, as many James Pattersons coming in. Have you? Mm-hmm. You feel like that's a slowdown a little bit on old Jimmy I mean, P? I have only been a library director for a year, but I would say he hasn't been on the list as much as I would expect, yeah. given how many books he has. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the shine's finally started to go off of old James Patterson, but this is the 13th book in the Michael Bennett series. I've read the first one of these. It's kind of a silly premise. It's Michael Bennett is like a, a secret agent who also has like 13 children. Oh. <laughs> He's like the perfect family man and also a secret agent, I guess. I, I kind of dig that. Do you? Super by the dozen meets... The Sound of Music meets <laughs> Alex Cross, I guess. Uh, anyway, an assassin killing a number of women, a number of women, might disrupt the detective's wedding plans. Oh. Huh. I feel like, I thought he was married. Maybe that's his, maybe I just spoiled this series for myself. Maybe maybe his wife dies midway through. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I thought he started with... Spoilers. But I feel like he starts with a dead wife and then has, like, a new wife in the series. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I've got. Turned out to be the culprit of one of the crimes. Maybe it was like a Faustian bargain kind of situation. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that it was? It's possible. it's possible that it was. Okay, let's get to it, Sally. Uh, I'm excited to share this interview with everybody today. The author I'm interviewing today is Stephen Barnes, and you can find more about Stephen Barnes at stephenbarneslife.com. A lot of interesting information there, including this bio, which I will read to you verbatim. Stephen Barnes is a New York Times bestselling author, screenwriter, and educator who's written more than 30 science fiction, fantasy, and horror novels. Octavia E. Butler called Barnes' Endeavor award-winning novel, Lion's Blood, imaginative, well-researched, well-written, and devastating. The NAACP Image Award winner is also a pioneering television writer who has written for The Outer Limits, The New Twilight Zone, Stargate SG-1, Andromeda, and Ben 10 Alien Force. My son loves that show. He's been nominated for Hugo Nebula and Cable Ace Awards. Barnes has lectured at UCLA, Mensa, Pasadena JPL, taught at Seattle University, hosted the Hour 25 radio show on KPFK, been Kung Fu columnist for Black Belt Magazine. That's something we did not get much into, and I did want to ask him a little bit more uh, about his martial arts, but anyway... He's been a starred speaker at the L.A. Screenwriting Expo, an avid yogi and martial artist with three black belts. Stephen's also a pioneer in the human potential movement, creating the groundbreaking life-writing creativity system, making writers the heroes of their own stories. So here we go. Stephen Barnes, thanks for joining us this week at the David A. Howe Public Library. Oh, my very great pleasure, Nick. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you today. I've got a lot of things I want to cover, but I thought I'd start with some screenwriting. I know, you know, your your writing output has has a lot of variance in it, and one of the things I wanted to ask about is the process of writing specifically for the screen. So I know you've written for things like uh, Stargate SG-1, Andromeda, Outer Limits, and a few different iterations of The Twilight Zone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a different iteration. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up on the original Twilight oh, Zone. Oh, sure. But- I got to to write for the 1980s uh, revival that uh, Phil DeGuerre and Harlan Ellison were, were mm-hmm. involved with. And then most recently, I've been able to work write for the one that Jordan Peele did. So it's it's Twilight Zone has been an important part of my life. Well, let's talk a little bit about about your recent episode. Now, this was co-written with your wife. Is that correct? Yes, it absolutely is. Was. And, and do you guys often collaborate in that way? Yeah. Um, you know, her, 
my wife is a Tanana Reeve Dew. She's a world-class, you know, horror novelist. She's just a world-class writer, period. <laughs> yeah. And so we've done a lot of stuff in Hollywood together for various reasons. And I, I think that that will continue going forward, although we will also have, you know, individual projects. Sure. So that is, uh, you know, the, I don't know. I don't know. You may have some questions about that, but I'll just I'll let you guide me. Sure. Uh, well, really, I mean, I was interested, first of all, you know, what, what your history with the Twilight Zone was. And it sounds like uh, you go way back with it. So that's that's good to know. Uh, but yeah. I just, I'm just wondering how this one came about. And if you can just tell us a little bit, uh, you know, about the episode and your experience working on it, a small town. It's yeah, um, well, it came about because uh, one of the things that makes Tanana uh, an incredible partner is that she's a natural marketer. Mm. She has a natural sense of connection. In, in Hollywood, a lot of getting the work in Hollywood is about is about personal connections. Mm. And if you if you can navigate that territory, you get into the circle and people tend to hire people that they know. Um, So this is why there's so many parties and people go to the same restaurants, bumping, (laughs) literally just bumping into people, you know, gets you work. So what happened is that she was teaching a class in horror writing at UCLA. And yeah, that led to her teaching the movie Get Out. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw the movie Get Out. Sure. We, we loved it. So she started teaching it and she was tweeting. She sent a Twitter message out just talking about her class and Get Out. And somebody saw that tweet over at Monkey Paw, which is Jordan Peele's company. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Peele actually answered her tweet. Wow. Said, ha ha. Wouldn't it be funny if I if I snuck into your class and surprised <laughs> him? So we arranged for him to actually do that. And oh, the, my and gosh. The, the reaction from the class was hysterical. I, I mean, can't they, imagine. Yeah, we, we we snuck him in, and uh, you know, I she was teaching the class. I I greeted him outside, and we took him to a safe room. And then while the room while the lights were off in the room, we we snuck him into a safe seat, and he's wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap to disguise his identity. And then uh, she was showing a scene from Get Out, and okay. when the lights came up, she said. Uh, so what do you think that the uh, the director was the director writer was trying to tell us about the commoditization <laughs> of black bodies in America? And a couple of you know one one or two hands went up and, yeah. and Jordan put his hand up and she called on him and she said you know the, the gentleman in the back and when he stood up and everybody saw who it was they went <laughs> berserk I mean literally people ran out of the room crying it was <laughs> it was amazing and then he got up there and he gave an hour of the most heartfelt brilliant conversation real. Real connection with these kids. Yeah, it was. It was as if he was trying to talk to himself at a at a younger yeah. phase of his life, and he was just wonderful and brilliant. And w- one way or the other, we ended up, you know, tangential to his circle, yeah. and that yeah. that led to us being invited to pitch for Twilight Zone. We did not make it the first season, okay. but by the second season, they came back to us, and we were able to get through that pitching process. And we we were able to riff off of a, a base idea that they had, okay. which was called Tiny Cul-de-Sac. And it was just a base idea. And we riffed on it and riffed on it and riffed on it back and forth until we had a, an idea that they liked and we liked. And then we developed it and wrote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how that's how that happened. Well, I, I love just the, the little like inside joke of the name of the town being Littleton, you know, when Damon Wayne's Jr.'s character is controlling oh, yeah. everything with the little town. You know, I, I appreciated that little nod there. Well, um, yes, you know, you, you think about it, what you look for 
you know, in, in the first draft, you know, uh, Ray Bradbury made a comment. You, you write the first draft as running running barefoot through the grass. You just write it. <laughs> right. But then you look for resonances and you look for thematic threads uh-huh. and you look for things you can amplify. And one of the things that I looked for was, you know, what title could have more than a single meaning? Mm-hmm. Because a little town, you know, well, it's it's the name of the town is Littleton. Yeah, yeah. The town itself is small. Right. The town right. the the model of the town is small. Yeah. And the attitudes in the town are small. So a small town, small mind, mm-hmm. small geographic location, small simulation, et cetera, et cetera. So given a title like that, then it's possible to say, well, how can we reinforce if we're gonna play with that thematically? Yeah. How can we find elements within the story that will reflect that and mirror that? Mm-hmm. And so the people might not consciously realize that that's what you're doing, but in the course of a of a movie or a television show, the the, the clock continues to tick. You're on a train. Yeah. It gets on here. It stops there. Now you can freeze the the image you know, on a television set or on cable, but you're kind of thinking about the experience of watching a play or watching a movie in a theater where you cannot freeze it. And so you have these successions of images and words and sounds that are just a, a, a train passing yeah. in the night where yeah. people don't get to go back and look at what you said earlier. So on on multiple viewings, they can do that. But yeah. on the first view, it's just a series of emotional experiences. You know, this, this image creates this emotion followed by this image that creates this emotion. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a cavalcade, an avalanche of emotions, each of which has to build on the emotions that came before. And each sets up the emotion that's coming later sure. so that by the end yeah. of the story, they walk out of the theater or out of the or, or turn off the television and, and, and say, wow, I just had an experience. So if you do that. Then after you finish your first draft, you look at it, and you can ask yourself the question, how do I want people to feel? Mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. this is over yeah. you know the same yeah. thing is going to be true of a short story or anything else what do, how do i want them to feel what is the what how do i want them to think how do i want them to view the world how do i want to change them or what do i want them to understand about how i see these things the art sales is a is a transfer of enthusiasm mm-hmm. from one person to another art is very very similar to that you are trying to get them to feel something that you felt so your your intellectual skills, plot and, and, and structure and language and onomatopoeia and, and literation, all these fun things, only work to the degree that you are affecting the emotional experience. You're yeah. building yeah. the emotional experience for the viewer, the reader, whatever. And so it's it's that it's that succession of emotions. In the process of this, we kept asking ourselves because we believe that that get out is superb oh it's yeah, beautifully yeah, yeah. done and that jordan peele is a genuine he's the real deal i mean we take a look at the second film us mm-hmm. i would say that us is not as successful a movie as mm-hmm. as uh, get out but it's far more ambitious mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. it's it's a broader palette. there's more talent and more intelligence okay. on display in okay. us but it's such it, it's like it's like the same. It's like more cookie dough, but spread out over a bigger pan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the yeah. cookies are thinner. But don't make any mistake. What you're looking at when you look at Jordan Peele is somebody who is uh, he's not a normal creative person. Mm-hmm. He's he really is genius. We've seen Candyman, you know, his next movie. Oh, okay. Let me okay. tell you something. It's not a fluke. Okay. This this okay. guy 
this guy is coming to play. He's, he's serious. He's a, he deserves his success. It's not an accident. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you play with people like that, you you want to up your game. Sure. You know, it's like this is a chance to learn. It's like, you know, anything else. You, you want to get better. You play with people that are better than you. Sure. So sure. as far as I can say, okay, we're playing with somebody who's better than us. How do we learn from the experience? So it was a commitment to doing something career-wise. We're trying to do something that this person who we like very much yeah. and respect will enjoy something that can conceivably make a cultural change because we feel that this is a, an incredible moment in American culture. It's a moment right. that I've been looking for for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I knew that the cult, that the change was going to come. In fact, I think that some of the social disturbances that we're seeing right now are the result of people afraid of social change, you know, the future sure. shock. Yeah, yeah. Social, yeah. because it's been massive change. And I think that it, although I am cautious of them, I have to try, I want to feel some compassion for the people who feel overwhelmed by that pace of change. Yeah. You know, we will get through this and I want, I want my work to be a contributing factor there. I, I want, I don't want to add to the fire. And that says, I, I want to channel that flame to boil water, to make steam, to turn turbines that move mm -hmm. us forward. <laughs> yeah. Going back to what you said, I think it is it little touches, something like the name of the town, little touches like that layered within. I think whether, you know, the reader or in this case, the viewer is picking that up the first time around, whether they're getting that like consciously or subconsciously, I think it's adding to, you know, your appreciation of the work and it makes it a much deeper experience. So I appreciated the little touches specifically in this episode. But you know, most of our appreciation of reality is not on the level of the conscious mind. Sure. So the the artist we're doing puppet shows. Mm -hmm. It's not that people don't see the strings. It's mm -hmm. not that people think the puppets for real human beings, but we have to get them to suspend their disbelief. Sure. We have to get them to believe in those puppets, to be willing to go along with us and kind of say, if you're willing to ignore the strings mm -hmm. and the artificiality here, we will tell you the most honest story that we can. You know, we will use, we will not use your trust against you. People want to be taken away. They want to be swept away. And I think that you can see some examples in in our current you know uh, circumstances yeah. of people who have been swept away, arguably in the wrong direction, who trusted sure. at the wrong time. Yes, we are story. As far as I'm concerned, story made humanity as much as humanity made stories. Mm -hmm. We are the stories we tell about reality. So. When you tell a story, you're asked, you're, you start with the, the primal story, which is once upon a time, mm -hmm. you know, it was a land of shining spires and beautiful <laughs> princes and brave knights yeah, yeah. and evil dreams. You know, and we go back into that storytelling trance. We, we're familiar with that. And all our viewers and readers are asking for is, if I trust you, please take me someplace that will help make sense of my world, that will lift my load, that will entertain me or give me some wisdom or help me understand your perspective mm -hmm. more. You know, So there is fantastic level of responsibility if you actually love your audience. Yeah. Well, going back to what you're saying about social change, I wondered about the ending of this episode because, you know, it feels, I feel like every day it feels more and more timely. And I wondered how much of that was intentional on your part. The, you know, were you specifically commenting on 
the way societies change and, and the, the messiness of societal change and, well, and what it takes to move forward. We're specific, we were specifically trying to discuss what human beings are. I mean, there are only two things to discuss in art, the same as there are only two things to discuss in philosophy. Who am I and what is true? What is it to be human and what is the world that they see? So to the degree that you are telling the truth about that, you are inevitably going to be touching on the way societies behave and you know political structures and so forth. But I'm not primarily a political person, sure. primarily a philosophical person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's dig into some of your early days here. We were just talking about your collaboration with your wife here, and I was I was a little curious about your collaboration with Larry Niven back in in, in your <laughs> uh, in the early days. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that came, how that came apart and what your experience uh, was. Oh, uh, and it came about very simply. I stopped yep. him. You know. <laughs> okay. I mean, true. I mean, just as honest as I can be. I was writing. I was not terribly successful. Okay. I had sold some things, you know, getting paid in contributors' copies at a okay. fifth of a cent a word. And I knew that I needed, I needed help. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be a doctor, you you've been to the doctor many times. You want to be, a, if you want to be a lawyer, you probably know lawyers. But I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't know any writers. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that you have to do. Find, you know, somebody just asked me a couple of days ago, what would your specific recommendation be for a woman who's being stalked at work? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I said I would publish a note on my Facebook page asking for people who've been stalked at work who dealt with this successfully to tell me what they did. Yeah. Well, that's not a specific recommendation. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a very specific recommendation. It is find someone who has successfully dealt with the situation. So my whole thing was how do I find a real writer? And a friend of mine said that Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell uh, uh, hung out at the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, a club in the Lostness in in, in Los Angeles on Thursday nights. And so I went went home and I thought, Larry Niven, I know that name. And I took a look at my library and I found a book called All the Myriad Ways, a collection of short stories that has a short story uh, in it called All the Myriad Ways, which is a story of alternate timelines. And I thought it was genuinely brilliant. And I said, this is a brilliant writing. So armed with the ability to then compliment him sincerely, mm-hmm. because I think that on some level, people can always read your mind. There's sure. going to be an incongruence between your lie, your body language, your vocal <laughs> tonalities, your facial expressions, that, that it's much easier to tell the truth. Yeah. So if I want something from someone, I'm going to find something honestly positive to say to them. So I was able to do that. And uh, I won't go into it too deeply unless you ask more questions about it. But I was able to, over the course of uh, a relatively short frame time frame talk him into into reading some of my stories okay and then to give me a chance to rewrite an unsuccessful story that he had written oh wow luckily the story was not unsuccessful because of his biology or his physics Mm -hmm. because i would have been screwed if it had been that because he's simply smarter than me about those things (laughs) Uh, but the psychology of the story was off okay there were some things about human behavior that I could tell, wait a minute, oh, okay. that's not the way people would behave yeah. in this stance. And so I had some, there was something I was able to contribute that, that unless I was able to contribute something, then I did not deserve to ask him to spend his incredibly precious time and attention to help me. And it was that, that if you want to bond to somebody, you, you bond to them for their benefit, for their reasons, not yours. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the, you know, what is it that they get out of the situation? Mm-hmm. So I had done my homework and this is, I wasn't asking him to take me as a raw beginner. Yeah, yeah. I was willing to work my butt off. I was willing 
to suspend my ego and be in the student position, totally, not mm-hmm. arguing about anything. It was just like, tell me what to do. If I disagree, I will give you my reasons for disagreeing, but then I will do it your way. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that my commitment was always to, when I walk away from Larry, I want him to feel better than he felt when I walked toward him. Sure. I, had, I made that commitment to him over 30 years ago. And I love that man. He he is so responsible for so much. And Jerry Pornell, who we, we lost recently, I cannot repay the debt that I owe these men. It's not that I did not earn my way. Mm-hmm. It's that I am very aware of the treasure that they offered me that I could not have gotten in any school in the world. There is no school that teaches you what I got studying from these men, from being willing to suspend my ego. Sometimes what they said hurt. I mean, there were times when working with Larry and Jerry on that first novel, The Legacy of Herod, was just devastating mm-hmm. ego. And Jerry, who is more of a nat- was more of a natural teacher than Larry, could also just be brutal. I mean, just <laughs> brutal. You know, and he'd be, he, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how many people have ever had the experience of having two world-class writers on opposite sides of the room. Yeah, probably a short you know, list. Yeah, yeah you know, ripping apart their work <laughs> at the same time. And Jerry would be short, like, ah, we're ripping apart Barnes's precious prose. <laughs> Barnes was your mother scared by a gerund, you know. <laughs> and there would be times when I would drive home crying, just tears just streaming down my face because it hurt so bad. But I knew that if I could hang in there, it was like sparring with Mike Tyson. Sure. If I can hang in there, I am going to learn things that I could not learn yeah. in any aerobic boxing class, yeah. you know, or middle class gym. No, this is real. You know, you go into a boxing gym, the old pros in there are going to test you. They're going to rip you a new one. And if they find out that you do the work, that you've got the heart, mm-hmm. that you can hang in there, at some point they will start saying, you know, come over here, young man. Let, yeah, me, yeah. let me show you this. Let me show you that. And so that's. Well, it was at this point in my relationship with Larry, I write with him and, and, and we did that last book with Jerry because I love them both and I love Larry. And it is a way of saying to him, I love you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving me a chance to live the life that I wanted. Yeah. Not that I did not do all the work, but you cannot quantify the value of what those men gave me. I, I par, a price far beyond rubies. Now, and I imagine, you know, you, you're saying that like, because of their bluntness, you probably were able to learn those lessons a lot more quicker, quicker and a lot oh, more effectively yeah. than if they would have been, you know, now listen, you might want to, you know, no, nothing no, comes no, no. to the quick, like a harsh word. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like they wanted to, I mean, in one sense, it's just the way they were. In another sense, it was, if you can't hang with this, you're not going to be able to survive rejection. Mm-hmm. And if you can't handle rejection, that's like, you know, there are three things that I've spent a lot of time in my in my life, in relationships, you know, family, martial arts, and writing. So I'm going to pull metaphors from the, from the different ones. Right. If you can't handle getting hit in the face, you're not going to learn very quickly mm-hmm. because you are going to be in the illusion that moving an inch to the side, angling this way, holding your hands this way is useful. Whereas if you get hit in the face, you know, in, in one second, you can learn something that a teacher might argue with you about for weeks. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, no, this will work. This will work. Bang. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so in terms of writing, people who self-publish 
are often avoiding the very pain that would teach them and help them to their their capacity. And I really believe that any goal that you can hold in your mind for a sustained period of time, there is a way for you to bring it into existence. Mm -hmm. That is a faith-based belief. I'm totally aware that there are limitations to that. But I find that people who believe, well, there's just people, they're just people who are talented and people who are not. I think that that talent is not a useful concept. Mm-hmm. I have never in my life heard anybody use the concept of talent to ennoble them, raise them up, mm-hmm. or make them successful. I've only used heard talent the concept of talent used for people who are quitters. Sure. Who people say, Well, I didn't have the talent to do that. <laughs> right. You know, I didn't have the talent to do this. I didn't have the talent to do that. They're not looking at the fact that when you get close to the people who are supposedly talented, all you ever see is a lifetime of focus, hard work, and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've known people in relationships. You ask your grandparents who've been married for 80 years, you know, how did you do that? You know, or, or 50 years, how did you do that? And they'll say, It was hard. Mm-hmm. But we did not, we, there was no back door. Right. This is who we were. We were going to make this work because of our family, our religious beliefs, our commitments, whatever. You talk to martial artists, you know, people are scarred up. And, you know, if you go to Arnold Schwarzenegger's house, it's not that he didn't have great, great genes, but you also notice that there's a gym. Yeah. It's filled with exercise equipment. It's filled with books on bodybuilding mm-hmm. and psychology success. You go to a writer's house and it's filled, it's crammed with books. Yeah. You know, yeah. it doesn't occur to you that maybe, maybe the thing that's in common between these people is that they stuck it out. They moved through the pain. They found some way to keep going. And that ideally they were not trying to become best-selling award-winning writers as much as they were trying to spend as much of their life writing as they possibly could. Yeah. They wanted to have readers, but they didn't need to have millions of readers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is a few thousand readers who will buy everything that you write will support you. Yeah, I think that the average person can create a life of real meaning for themselves. Asking about external standards, like can you become a best-selling writer? Can you do this? Can you mm-hmm. do that? is not as important as can you spend your life doing something that actually gives you meaning, actually gives you joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so every day, I, I may not live. I may not, you know, yeah, not, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I may not live until tomorrow. Yeah. But what I can do is find meaning today. So if the work I do today has meaning in the moment, and it is also designed so that if I have a succession of those days, I will finish short stories, I will finish books, I will finish scripts, I will improve my martial arts skills, I will raise my child, I will have a good marriage. Looking back over a year, five years, a decade, a succession of decades, if the individual units of your days have give you joy, mm-hmm and are in integrity with your ethics and also are building blocks towards that future you want. So you've got this, you've got this, this, this uh, blueprint for a house you want to build. Mm-hmm. And every day you take pleasure laying one brick on that foundation. Mm-hmm. Eventually you'll have that house yeah. or you won't live long enough to build the whole house, but you had a succession of wonderful days dreaming about it. And you, you did this thing that was of, of value to you. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, that the most fortunate people in the world 
are the people who just naturally out of their sense of who they are lay that brick every day mm-hmm. you know so that's all i try to do is to did i do my pages today did i work out today mm-hmm. did i tell my wife that i love her today did i tell my son and my daughter that i adore them today did i pick up the phone and communicate with a friend and tell them how my life has been transformed by them and how grateful i am to them today did i connect with my own heart today and tell myself and that little boy inside me i love you so much (laughs) and and watch him jump up and down and say you know i love you too daddy this is great let's have another fun day if you design your days right your life takes care of itself Mm -hmm. I want to circle back to something that you said, you know, er- earlier when you were talking about the story, the original story that you rewrote uh, that, that Larry Niven had given you. And you said, yes, the, it was the, called the locusts. And you said the issue there was with the was the with the psychology of the characters. Yes. And I find that so interesting because I feel like, you know, of course, character motivations and character dynamics are really I mean, they're elemental in any kind of story. But isn't that even more true in something like a, a fantastical world, whether it's a fantasy novel or a sci fi because so much of the world that you're seeing is different and new that if you don't... Well, it should be true, but it isn't. Oh, you know, right. science fiction writers are not smarter on the average than mainstream writers, sure. but they have an additional level of complexity. So once mm-hmm. again, it's the cookie pan, you know, metaphor. They've got the same amount of talent, but it's spread wider because yeah. they're creating a new world rather than dealing with the world that we see. So classic science fiction was notable for being flat in terms of the psychology, yeah. Well, yeah. because yeah, yeah. because they would be more interested in the working out of some aspect of physics or astrophysics or biology than the question of the psychology. And then the new wave came in, which was sociological mm-hmm. and, and and more psychological back in the 60s. And now we have more of a synthesis where people are are both looking into into questions of representation and mm-hmm. inc- inclusivity. Sure. But that question, what are we as human beings, is more important than the question, you know, what does science say about the world? But basically what happened in, in, uh, in The Locust is that the story dealt with a group of space colonists on a, on a distant planet whose children began devolving into australopithecines. They, okay. they start becoming, you know, more primitive forms of human beings, okay. you know, a step up from apes, but a step down from humanity. And this was causing fantastic trauma to this community. Sure. And there was, a, a, I guess there may be a hundred couples, maybe 200 couples on this planet. And uh, one of them commits suicide. One, you know, there's a, a murder suicide. Okay. And people are talking about it. And I noticed the people were talking about this as if they read it in the newspaper and it happened to somebody in another mm. state that they didn't know. That's nonsense. That that in a community that small where this is happening to all of them, that that would be more devastating than if your twin brother who lived next door yeah. experienced a, 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 a such such a tragedy, yeah. you know, yeah. a, a murder suicide. So I said the psychology here is off. He, yeah. he's not he's not getting that aspect of it. And that's kind of natural in the sense of you know, your, your brain can only hold, can only juggle so many things at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it gave me an, it gave me an in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that science fiction is going through a real change right now. And a lot of the people who are into classic science fiction who aren't in touch with their feelings, who aren't in touch with 
that sense of deep humanity and extending that humanity to others are being freaked out by it. You know, women and people of color. And, and why is it that MK Jenison, MK Jenison, Jemison is, is getting all these awards and I don't like her work and so forth and so on. And they're not, you're not getting the fact that, yeah, it used to be that, you know, white heterosexual guys had 99% of what was going on in science fiction and, mm-hmm. and they felt like it was their toolbox. Yeah. And the toolbox got broken open. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're not playing in a sandbox. We're playing on the beach. <laughs> and it's it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, we're asking different questions. We're yeah. standing on the shoulders of Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, you know, the big three. And we're saying, you looked at what the universe was. Mm-hmm. Let us look at the other part of this question as well. What are we what is it to be human? Mm-hmm. And I think that the best work the field has ever produced is still ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes I'm just thinking of other authors that, that I've spoken to about uh, similar topics. It seems like there's a sense, too, that the kind of stories you can tell are, are more widely accepted under the under the guise of science fiction than if you were writing, you know, a straightforward fiction about a topic that's upsetting or, or hard to deal with. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I mean... I figured, you know, 30 something years ago mm-hmm. that there were whole areas that I could not write about mm-hmm. in terms of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, for almost 20 years, I was the only black male science fiction writer that I knew of in yeah. the world. Yeah. I never ran into another one in a convention. I didn't see any pictures on books. I didn't see any black characters on covers mm-hmm. of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I wrote about a black character in my first solo novel, they put a white guy on the cover. Jeez. So I, and nobody would take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. My poor editor, Beth Meacham, was just crying when she called, called me to talk to me about mm-hmm. it. And her editor, Susan Allison, said that it was the marketing department. The marketing department said it was the art department. The art department said that it was distribution. And the truck drivers who put the books on stands, you know, if they thought it was shaft in space, wouldn't put the books up there. So everybody was blaming somebody else. And I think that all of them were probably people of integrity and people of, of being as honest as they could be. But I also think that in a situation where something has happened and no one takes responsibility, the only thing that is reasonable to assume is that it's the group. Mm-hmm. And I, I then had to ask myself, do I think that this is something exclusive to the publishing industry? Yeah. No, obviously course, true in yeah. politics, you know, mm-hmm. in Hollywood, you know, in, in any other arena. So then I'd have to ask myself the question, do I think that this is something exclusive to white people Mm -hmm. and to think that would strike me as contrary to my view of humanity sure so it became a matter of i think that that part of being human are those tribalistic aspects Mm -hmm. that relate to our childhoods that you know our mommy is the prettiest our dog is the smartest our daddy the strongest um, and it's just part of our basic survival apparatus that we are now attempting to outgrow. Yeah. So I asked myself the question, how long is it going to take for society to change until I will be able to tell the stories I want to take? Yeah. You know, or will it? And I figured it could take two generations. It could take 40 years. You know, let's say 30 years if I'm optimistic. So the question really was, can I survive long enough? Yeah. Can I? And I was in my in my late twenties at that time, 
you know, in my early 30s, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in my early 30s. I said, what happens if it takes 30 years? Yeah. Will there be enough of me left? Will I become embittered? Will I, you know, when the opportunities are finally there, will I be courageous enough and mm-hmm. honest enough and enthusiastic enough to be able to walk through that door when it opens? Yeah. Well, I think the door has opened now. It's not open wide. It's not as, as wide as it was for those same white guys who are now screaming and complaining. And, you know, that all that tells me is, yeah. man, if they were black, they they would, if they were black, they would hate white people. Right. <laughs> because they have no empathy at all. Right. I mean, it's like, it's so <laughs> funny. They yeah. have no idea. Um, so I, I, believe as of about the time you know as of the turn of, of into the 21st century yeah. as of the election of barack obama the popularity of get out uh, a, a television series called the unit which uh with dennis hayes birth that came mm-hmm. on in about 2005 mm-hmm. which was the first dramatic hour-long television you know, network television series in history with a non-white lead that was successful it was lasted more just... than two seasons that's both as, shocking um, and not surprising at all you know I no mean, it's that's... not surprising at all it's just this is human stuff yeah you know as of the movie there yeah i won't even mention the name of the movie at, at, at first but at, about it within the last five years there was finally a theatrical motion picture in which a non-white lead had sex where the movie earned over a hundred million dollars, which wow. is the, the, the standard for success in Hollywood. Yeah. And I bet you can't, you know, Will Smith never never made it across that line with a movie in which he had a love scene. Denzel never made it across that line with really? a movie in which he had a love. That's right. Neither of them did. You know what the you know what the movie was? The first one? I don't. Creed. Oh. The the the, the 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 sequel, the Rocky. Yeah, 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 yeah. Creed. Yeah. yeah, Michael B. Jordan had a love scene in that movie with Tessa Thompson. And it made about $130 million. I mean, it, it made it across that line. Creed Two is the only other movie, it, you know, with, with a black, black male lead that actually had a love scene. We're talking about domestic box office. Um, and uh, Crazy Rich Asians is the only one where an Asian male made it, you know, had sex that made it across that $100 million mark. People... You know, it's like, you know, what's a love scene? Are you expecting, you know, something? No, you know, you know, you want pornography? No, no, right, no. Right. Every James Bond movie has love oh, scenes. Yeah, certainly. You know, it's like in a PG 13 love, everybody's clothes are on, yeah. but they're kissing in a private place, fade to black. Right. You know, they wake up and they're stretching in bed right. and filing it in. We know what this is. Right, right. We're adults right. here. So, you know, Rhett Butler carries Scarlet up the stairs, and the next morning we see her stretching, yawning, yeah, and yeah. looking satisfied. <laughs> right. We know yeah, what we this can, is. We can put that together yeah so we can put it together so i looked at that as this is my measure of the degree to which the majority culture accepts our humanity so looking at all these different things and the success of black panther now and get out i said yeah this is the time and the the doors are open so the question is have i survived yeah you know is there enough left of me yeah you know and i believe that the answer is yes but I need to be very careful. I need to be as directed as possible. I need to be very careful with my energy. I need to be careful with my fear, right. which is like, okay, so this is what all those decades of yoga and meditation and martial arts have been about. Yeah. It's been about how do I direct my energy so that I can do this thing that my that the little boy inside me wanted to do. You know, He didn't want to be Billy Jack or Bruce Lee. He just wanted to feel safe in the world. I, I mean, I just... <sighs> 
it, this just blows my mind because, I mean, I, I know that this is something that I can never truly understand. And yet, you know, I'm so... I'm so curious about how that would how that affects a person to be just like you said, be the only black man who's a science fiction author that you know of that you can think of. And, you know, you know that it's not just one editor who decides, no, we can't put that on the cover. It's 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 a system. It's an institutionalized system. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and to be honest with you, what the I will not mention names, but the publisher of one of the most important science fiction magazines in the field blacklisted me on the basis of race. Uh, and after his death, two of his co-editors came to me totally separately. They did not know that either that the other existed and told me about it. They said, you know, Steve, you need to know this. So, you know, it's just there are always limitations. You know, if, if you're fat, if you're ugly, if you're, you know, have a disability of some kind, if you're gay, if you're this, if you're that, there are all sorts of different things that can stop you yeah. from being able to succeed in that particular demographic way. Um, and it's poisonous. Yeah. Um, you know, I ran into one and it has different versions mm-hmm. of those limitations, uh, I believe are responsible for the clear demographic shift and ter- not demographic, but statistical shift in terms of life expectancy, infant mortality, inherited wealth and incarceration. You know, there are very clear statistics about that. And in my mind, the natural human tendency, tribal tendency, explains all of that without any problem at all. Yeah. Um, you know, so to the degree that I see it as a matter of human beings, then I ask myself, well, how do I feel about human beings? And yeah. the truth is that I'm ultimately asking, how do I feel about myself? Because from my philosophical position we're all connected Mm -hmm. so if i love myself and i understand how my own fear creates anger and separation then i can look at this and just say this is just human beings working out their stuff it's not it's nothing personal to the degree that i can maintain a philosophical position about this while at the same time keeping myself and my family safe and in making the moves that I can make whenever I can make them playing three-dimensional chess and understanding that I had more opportunities than my father had. My father was a a singer. He was a backup singer for Nat King Cole. Oh, wow. You know, I was in the studio when they recorded the backups for Ramblin' Rose. I was just a little boy, you know, and every time I hear it on the radio, I imagine that I can hear my, my father is, you know, bass voice sing that song in the background and he was able to perform in hotels where he could not stay and that was just the way it was and if you don't grasp that that was not ancient history i grew up at the tail end of segregation you know i remember restaurants kicking us out because they thought my mother and father were a mixed couple you know so this is if if you look at this and you say you know tribes really do exterminate other tribes. You know, ask ask the Neanderthals about that. Oh, that's right. You can't. They're gone. Uh, It's, you know, (laughs) this is what we are. And if you look at that drive, but you also look at the fact that human, human humanity has, as far as I can tell, become more peaceful, more connected, more communicative um, than ever before on our history. I mean, with, with, with variations, you see, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we have violence in yeah. Washington yeah. that I think is connected to just 
this issue. Mm -hmm. People seeing too much change because there's been too much progress. Um, And so they they want to pull it back to the past. And, you know, they're not evil people. They're frightened people Mm -hmm. and frightened people do evil things. Mm -hmm. So um, it's my job. You know, it's just my turn in the barrel. You know, (laughs) that's a a pretty nasty little joke if you understand what that reference is. Um, But, you know, if if my father paid a bigger price than I've paid and his father paid a bigger price than he paid, then it's my job to behave in such a way that my children pay a smaller price. Yeah. And then maybe their children will pay a price that's so small that they won't even really notice. You know, it's that that change is coming, but it's generational. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't undo 400 years or in some cases, tens of thousands of years in terms of, let's say, gender issues mm-hmm. overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, race started changing, you know, really, you know, in like the late uh, the late 60s, early 70s, when, when black people finally became fully citizens, when the Voting Rights Act passed. Mm-hmm. You know, women became capable of controlling their reproductive cycles as of birth control pills. Yeah. You know, so what what happened before that point is very different than what's happening after that point. But the shadows of what happened, if you got the, you know, it takes time to turn the Titanic around. Yeah, yeah. There's this thing called inertia. Right. And when you have social inertia that's lasted for a thousand generations, I'm sorry, you don't change the direction overnight. Um, it's going to take time. Yeah. So I... My philosophical position on these things are what enabled me to keep my heart alive. Mm-hmm. You know, my question, you know, the, the Dalai Lama says that the meaning of life is to seek joy. Mm-hmm. So my attitude was illegitimate non carborundum. You know, don't let the bastards drag you down. I was not going to let the evil done by frightened people stop me from living a life of joy. Yeah. No so, matter what. So did you, you don't get that right. Yeah. So was that a galvanizing thing in your life? I mean, did you, did you see L that? to the yes. Good. You know, it's like, you know, it, it, fear, anger is fear, okay? Sure, sure. Yeah, and uh, fear is nothing to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. You know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. See, that is really true, that, mm-hmm. that I had I had morbid fear, uh, pathological fear of certain things for decades and went to therapist after, you know, shamans and hypnotists and coaches trying to deal with that. But once you gain clarity on what fear is, it's just your body mind preparing you for action, mm-hmm. fight or flight. Yeah. It's just yeah. potential fuel. And once you learn how to use that fuel, you can use your fear to get you up in the morning, keep mm-hmm. you going all day, especially if you use that fear to drive you towards your love. So that's what I say that, that every day I, I tell my family, I love them that I, I'm aware that I'm going to die, that, mm-hmm. that I'm, I have a limited time mm-hmm. to nurture my son, to prepare my daughter for her life, that, that this wonderful woman, Tanana Ibnu, who is a walking miracle, she is amazing. I want to make sure that every day I let her know that she's amazing because one day one and or both of us will be gone. Mm-hmm. And all of that is driven by fear, mm-hmm. fear of death, fear of extinction. It's the let me live fully while I'm here. So it's absolutely galvanizing. Do not be afraid of don't be afraid of your fear of death. Of course, I'm afraid of death, mm-hmm. but I'm not afraid of my fear of death. Yeah, that's the difference, and that's what what the martial arts gave me because it made explicit and conscious something that I otherwise might have been able to be in denial of. So, mm-hmm. so what I got from those arts were not the physical movement, although the physical movement is fun. You know, I, I and I have an absurdly high ranking in, in one of those things, and it's all fun. But that's not as important as the mental clarity. Mm-hmm. Because it's that mental clarity that you use in non 
physical combat situations. You know, you're driving your car and somebody cuts you off or your kid is sick in the middle of the night or, or my son is screaming that he's not going to do his homework or I, I, I'm frustrated and, you know, and, 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 and dealing with my emotions, you know, when, when things aren't working or the world seems like it's falling apart, whatever those things are, finding your center mm-hmm. or, or I'm writing a book. And I'm afraid the book isn't working. I'm writing a script. And every single time I turn a script and I get notes back on it, I go through the same fear process. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I've screwed up. This isn't going to work. Those voices in my head are always going off every time I get notes back on a book, story, a script. So I have to have my process. How do I ease my way into this? Mm-hmm. So I will ease my way into it. You know, very slowly. It's like sticking your toe in in in, in the pool before you ease it. It's like, well, I will just read over the notes. I, you know, the day I get the notes, I put it aside. The next day, I'll read over the notes, and I'll feel sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. The day after that, I will read over the script or the story and kind of say, well, do I see three things that I can address in these notes? Just a couple things, just very easy, very simple. Then I will, the next day, so I'm easing my way to it. I let my unconscious mind chew over the gap between where the story needs to be and where it seems to be Mm -hmm. based upon the notes that I got, making the assumption that my editor is an intelligent reader. Mm -hmm. My editor just wants this book to work. They're not my enemy. Mm -hmm. They are my allies. Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven Mm -hmm. were. So if I, so it's like, let me just fix the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Maybe just some typos. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, my conscious mind is looking at just the easy, easy things there while my unconscious mind is chewing over the big issues. And I will just continue. And when I come back to it the next day, mm-hmm. there's a different set of low-hanging fruit, mm-hmm. a different set of easy things to fix. Yeah. And I will yeah. just fix the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I will keep doing that. And every day, different sets of things look easy until I start, until the things that looked horrifying to me the first time I looked at it, it's just, oh, I can that by doing this, this, and this. Oh, okay, I can do this, this, and this. There's always an answer, or at least that's, that's my belief. Mm-hmm. And my belief, since I don't believe in talent, it's never <laughs> yeah. a matter of maybe I'm not good enough. It's yeah. always a matter of am I being honest enough? Am I putting in enough work? Am I studying enough? Have I done enough research? Mm-hmm. So because talent is off the table, the voice that says you're not good enough, mm-hmm. you, know, you only have a career because of affirmative action, or whatever the voice in my head is yeah. saying, you know, uh, I can tell that voice to shut up, you know, it's like, oh, sh- go away, shut up, you know, and things that I would not put into a, a broadcast intended for a family audience. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, all this stuff connects, you know, ultimately the the rules and laws and principles that work in the arena of writing work everywhere else, too, mm-hmm. or else they're not. it's not wisdom. It's just, you know, it's just instructions. I, yeah. I'd much rather look for the wisdom. Mm-hmm. Now I have to ask, uh, you know, is, this, is this conversation what it is that you wanted from me? Is this working for you? It, this is great. I, you know, I, I, I didn't go in with any expectations. I just am a fan of okay, your, yeah. I wasn't just a fan of your work and was, was curious Aww, to see thank you. where we go. You know, I, I never get tired of hearing that. Well, hey, All that means is that you're a friend I've never met. Okay. That if we met personally, we'd probably have a nice conversation, even if we weren't talking about my work. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I always take that seriously. It always, it's always a joyful thing to hear. Well, you know, I've got a, I've got a little book club that we do outside of the library with just some friends. And 
we came across uh, a couple of a couple of your books, a couple of your uh, in universe for Star Wars and Star Trek books. So we read, oh yes, we read Cestus Deception and we, and we read uh, your Deep Space Nine adaptation, Far Beyond the Stars. Yeah. And as you're sitting here telling me your your story here and some of your early experience, I have to wonder how much of your story was in that Deep Space Nine adaptation because there's a lot. Oh of yeah, you, you you do have to wonder, don't a you? A lot of very clear parallels uh, I see there. Yeah, absolutely. You know that that art is self-expression. Yeah, successful art is successful expression plus clear communication, so yeah. that somebody else feels it. Marketing would be finding the people who want those feelings. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and sales is convincing them to give you their money right yeah. now. Yeah. So, um, so basically, what happened with uh, with Deep Space Nine? which is interesting was that they reached out to me and they wanted uh, they, they wanted a black writer and I was just about the only one in the field. Yeah. So I, they needed it in a month if I'm remembering this correctly. Wow. So I had to write that book in a month. Wow. I got my hands on the script. If I turned the script into a novel, that's about, that would be about half of the book. Yeah. A, 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 a 60 page script. I might be able to vamp to make a, 120 pages yeah. of a book and, and that's about half a book I had to come up with with an idea that that would double that and then i had to you know i i worked it out where i wrote whew, i wrote the first draft of that book you know i i had i'd done my research i was ready to go when they gave me the script in um they had to give me the script in in electronic form okay I told them, I said, I can do this on that timetable, but you need me. First of all, you're going to pay me a lot of money, which they did. <laughs> made a very nice Christmas good, there. Good. And I told my wife, who I was separated from, but we were still close. We still, yeah. we still lived yeah. in a we lived in a side by side duplex. Actually, <laughs> when my daughter There's came home from school, she came to my house, and my wife, my 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 ex, got home from work. She'd go over there, and we we love each other. I mean, uh, it's like yeah. we just ran out of dancing room for sure. our relationship. And I will always always love her. Um, and I told her, if you will handle parenting responsibilities for the next month, I will give you the best Christmas you've ever had. And she said, <laughs> go for it. And I kept my end of the deal. She kept her end of the deal. I wrote the first draft of Far Beyond the Stars in two weeks. Uh, it was just, I, I have to write, I think it was like 6,000 words a day or yeah. something like that. 5,000 words a day in order to stay on track. Yeah. Then I had a week to polish it. Yeah. And then I had another week after that to polish the polish. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was, you know, from the time I woke up in the morning and I would exercise and then I would sit at the table and write from about nine o'clock in the morning until about five o'clock in the afternoon, when my fingers were bleeding, you know, and my eyes were crossing, but I turned out that 5,000 words, whatever, whatever it was, it was about 5,000 words, uh, seven times five, 35. You know? Yeah, that's about right. It's just about right. Maybe five or 6,000 words. Um, then going over it the next week, I could step back and relax. But here's the thing. When you write that fast, you can't lie. Yeah, you don't have time to I come suppose, up with lies. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, it's just how does this person feel? How do they react? How does the world look to them? Just, just, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Um, and how you really feel about the world is going to come out. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, you. You just can't lie. So 
that was that um star the star wars novel was 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 a lot more fun mm-hmm. uh well that's not true it was more pure fun because it wasn't any social issues or yeah. anything it was just you know let me write you know and i i don't want to get involved with uh all of the the lore of star wars yeah. you know it's like i didn't read any other star wars novels i read one collection of star wars short stories mm-hmm. that was it Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to get the flavor of Star Wars. And then I confined the story to just a few characters in a new world. So I didn't have to deal with, you know, researching. What do the fans think about this and this, that, and the other. But then once I was there, I would watch the Star Wars movies yeah. to kind of get the feeling. And I loved the Star Wars movies, but I I did not feel obligated to do research mm-hmm. on it. I, I was trying to go, what is the corner of this world that I have not seen explored? For instance, the society of the clones, yeah. the humanity of the clones. Like, nobody's touched that. So I've, I've, I've got that. What are some characters that haven't been explored very much? Kit Fisto, mm-hmm. and this, that. And then I was actually able, my, the little kid inside me was totally having fun. I bet. Uh, in fact, there was a scene in that book that came right out of a story I wrote when I was in fifth grade. You know, when, when oh, I, really? <laughs> oh yeah, when I was in fifth grade, I wrote these stories. You know, I was it was like Man from Uncle was on television. Sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. James Bond I was crazy about James Bond mm-hmm. and, and Uncle, and so I wrote stories about uh, my first pulp, my first story that I ever wrote was called The Yeti about a about an abominable snowman in a Canadian lumber camp. I wrote that okay. when I was like third or fourth grade and the hero of that story name was bill conway and i wrote stories about bill conway for years mm-hmm. and, and he evolved into my own secret agent okay you know bill conway agent of octopus you know, <laughs> each of the eight arms of octopus yeah. was a different division you know mm-hmm. and at one point the organization that was against octopus i forget what their name was was it attacked octopus headquarters with these big robots that mm. that were like you know big uh, the, the the joints were gel were were inside a jelly sack and they flip together magnetically and they go through the sewers and popped up out of the manholes and assaulted octopus headquarters Uh yes i used that (laughs) and i was laughing my butt off the whole time so they're paying me for this and the little kid inside me was just so happy so i was having fun i was playing in a wonderful sandbox i got to go to to lucasfilm and hang out at the ranch I had met George Lucas some years before, very, very briefly, yeah. when uh, at the at the at the cast party for uh, Return of the Jedi. But being able to play in that sandbox was just so much fun. Yeah. I was glad that people have told me that they liked it, and yeah. you know, I've never done another one. Uh, but then I haven't been asked to, so you know, people liked it. But you know, for whatever reasons, that didn't come out. I probably wouldn't anyway mm-hmm. because I'm too busy now. But yeah. there been, there were times in the past, and I, I certainly would have. Um, so that's, you know, that's how those two, those things came. Oh, I got that job for Star Wars because the editor, Betsy Mitchell, wanted me to write a sort of clan of the cave bear type story set okay. in Africa. Okay. And so in, in order for me to have the time to, to research that, she got me, a, she got me a couple of really nice contracts yeah. Yeah, yeah. that had, that paid off well enough that I was able to write that quickly and then take the rest of that time to, you know, to travel and the money to travel to Tanzania and okay. do research and, and spend over a year just doing research before I could, you know, engage and write these other books. So that's okay. kind of career dynamics. Well, I do, I do have some questions for you about great sky woman here, but, um, the you know we we all like in the book club we all were just surprised at the power that the far beyond the stars had so i mean we just love that 
And I did catch the uh, the subtle lion's blood reference in uh, Cestus Deception with uh, oh Doob Snoil. Snoil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you can tell, I was just having fun. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, so my question here is. How does, because something like Great Sky Woman, like you're talking about, I mean, the, the amount of research that goes into Ugh. something like that, I mean, it must be massive, the world building, all of yes. that. So, I mean, it's, it, it, is, it must be a very freeing experience to be writing in established universes like the Star Trek or Star Wars, because you can just kind of, you know, do the fun parts, do the parts you want to do, because the world building. Well, you still is... have to know, man. You still have to do the research. Oh, I, was, sure. I didn't, I didn't, I deliberately created a situation where I was operating in a bottle, you yeah. know, where I didn't have to constantly be looking into this book, that book, this book, you know, talk to these people, you know, what mm -hmm. happened here. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't want to write that way yeah. uh, on, on any continuous basis. It was a short-term thing driven by financial finances mm -hmm. and driven by the fact, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. You know, I've never written, it'd be fun to write a Star Wars novel. You know, yeah. the question is, if I was rich, would I write a Star Wars novel? Yeah, mm -hmm. I would. I wouldn't do it on that timetable. Yeah. You know, but I would do it because that was like sprinting every day. And yeah. it really was. Um, but it was it was useful to see if I could do it with Great Sky Woman or Lion's Blood. Yeah. Massive amounts of research. Lion's Blood was, you know, six years of research. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, Sky at, at that point, it's like the world building. Almost, it almost becomes more like how you would approach a fantasy novel versus historical fiction. Is that right? I don't know. I mean, with a fantasy novel, see, the difference in my definition between fantasy and science fiction or alternate history, in that sense, sure. is that a fantasy novel only has to make sense internally. Sure. Okay. All okay. the symbols have to connect so that the unconscious of the reader feels propelled along. It's dream logic. Mm -hmm. okay? We don't really believe in flying dragons. Right. But if, you know, so I say, if, if, if I will... If you will believe in flying dragons for this story, let me tell you a story of, of love and hope and fear and mm -hmm. ambition. All you have to do is believe in flying dragons for mm -hmm. a few hundred pages. And, and if you if you make good on that promise, whereas science fiction and to a certain degree, uh, alternate history, people know, you know, there is physics, you know, that the universe works a particular way. So you can't violate that. You can violate that one time. Mm -hmm. If you're really smart, you can violate that. You know, we're going to pretend that there are faster than light ships, even though we know no way of doing that. But yeah. if, but we, I want to tell you a story about another a planet in another galaxy. Mm -hmm. So I, we need flash and light. I, you know, there is no known way of time travel. Right. So we're going to vamp and pretend that there's time travel yeah. so that I can tell you a story about what the world might be like mm -hmm. if there were time travel. With Great Sky Woman, what I knew was that I could not write that story unless I had boots on the ground. Yeah. I couldn't do it with research. I needed to research and then go to Africa and actually put boots on the ground there. I mean, I actually, I wanted to know what hunter gatherer at that time would feel, yeah. would see, would smell. I actually tasted antelope scat because wow. I know that's dedication. That yeah, well, I know that hunters will taste the droppings yeah. of their of their prey in order to determine the health of the prey, how, mm -hmm. how hydrated they were, right. and therefore how close to the water you know yeah. they, they, they might be found. Wow. You know, and, and any number of other things. They're they're so in tune with the environment. I did you know, and and once I did that, my approach to research when it comes to things like that is I will research until I have found what I consider to be a, a thought, a perception 
about that world that I never heard anybody else say. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I was on my research there, I met a gentleman named John Wagner from the the University of Kentucky. He's the head of the anthropology department, the, the paleoanthropology department or the anthropology department. I forget which it is, the University of Kentucky. And he agreed to backstop. He agreed to be to look at my manuscript and make, you know, and make suggestions. Okay. And I did my research until I came up with what I considered to be an original thought mm-hmm. about the dividing line between human beings and animals. Mm-hmm. And if you will recall, I talked about that in the foreword to the book, that my thought on the difference between human beings and animals is that human beings are creatures who make and use fire as a tool. Mm-hmm. All human groups do it. No animals do it. Mm. And if I looked at that, I then said, and what are the what are the things that result from that? Uh, higher bioavailability of protein by by changing the protein chains through 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 heat, uh, fire hardening uh, weapons to make them more efficient, more efficient hunting through using fire to drive people. And that's all interesting because it provides greater protein, which leads to larger brains, which require larger hip girths in the mothers. So human beings start getting larger and stronger and smarter with bigger brains, which leads to abstract thought because fire also gives us control over shadows Mm -hmm. because you can use fire at night to create shadows. And as you push back the night, you then fill that time with things like storytelling. Mm -hmm shadow dancing, mm-hmm. the turning of three-dimensional into two-dimensional shapes. Mm-hmm. And I wrote an essay about this, and I sent it off to John Wagner, holding my breath. I mean, how dare I uh, have a thought about something like this and present it to you know an academician, somebody yeah, sure. who's for real. Mm-hmm. And about six weeks later, and I was just on needles and pins the whole time, I got a letter back from him saying, Oh, Steve, you know, this this is right in alignment with some contemporary thought. I just came back from a conference in London where a paper was presented that had much the same thoughts about wow. the relationship between you. And I thought to myself, yes, you I'm ready. It. To do it. I did it. I did it. It's 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 I'm I'm smart enough to, to not ask stupid questions. Mm-hmm. That I know enough to see the limits of my knowledge so that I can ask experts to fill in those gaps. And that's all that I try to do. I don't try to know my subject. I try to know it well enough to know what I don't know Mm -hmm. or to have a sense of what I don't know so that I can stay away from those edges and stay within the realm of the things that I can feel comfortable about, the Mm -hmm. basic nature of humanity, you know, some basic concepts on how human society is developed, on how male and female roles developed, on how, you know, on that difference between, you know, what is it to be human? What was the early human world? Mm -hmm. And then within there, try to tell a a simple story about the origins of a myth Mm -hmm. about the first people who climbed Kilimanjaro to to, to meet the gods that lived at the top and and tell a fairy tale. And that, Mm -hmm. that novel is, if you notice the, the style of writing in it is more, poetic in many ways let's yeah. see here's a great sky woman right, right here um let's see what's the first what's the first paragraph in great sky woman um still shadow was ancient now but her people called a woman of dust four tins of warm rains had moistened her deeply weathered face daily walking on plains and hills hot tea brewed from the poison grub plants spiky leaves and milky roots and the grace of great mother herself kept the old medicine woman's back straight and her tread light. Still shadow was thought tall, 
standing a hand's breadth higher than the average Ibondi woman, the height of a typical male. Her skin was the color of dark clay, her black hair tightly coiled, her wise old eyes black and flecked with gray. Like other medicine women, other dream dancers, she covered her breasts and genitals with beaten and softened deerskin flaps, partially for protection from the cooler air atop Great Earth, but also in recognition that her seventh eye belonged to Father Mountain and his sons, the Hunt Chiefs. It took a year of research to be able to write that paragraph. Yeah. And to I be able it. to feel comfortable with the information encoded, because it's actually very dense. I could take a look at every line of that and I could tell you how much research I had to do oh, yeah. to be able to feel confident in that line. And then to be able to then state it simply mm -hmm. in, a, in a simple, poetic, once upon a time type language. And the truth is that, that I, I'm not sure that I've ever written a book with the poetry of its language being as consistent. And I'm not, I need to ask myself why, because I would like to move back there. That's kind of what I was getting at by, by saying it almost has a, a fantasy element to it because, yes. because it is so thorough, right, right down to the language and right down to the vibe. I mean, it, it really, I mean, I think you capture the vibe and the feel of, of that place and time uh, in a way that, uh, I don't know, I just don't think you often see in, in that kind of writing. This was one what, that- What I, I wanted to do, remember, is to create not just an anthropological novel, but a fairy tale that would help connect black readers, even though I knew that the average person who was gonna read this book was gonna be white. Mm -hmm. What I wanted to do was to create a plank, create a, uh, do my part to, to broaden the path for black readers to feel they are connected to humanity, mm -hmm. connected to literature. That if I could take everything I knew and create a simple story where all you had to do was be carried along by that story and you would deepen your sense of humanity being one. Mm -hmm. I could do that, then I would have honored the talent that God gave me. Yep. There's the your talent, even though I said I don't believe <laughs> it. And my life and the wisdom of all of the all the writers and teachers and, and the trust of my fans and uh, the legacy that I want to leave for my children. Well, that's great. Well, Steve, I, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a, a great conversation, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to have it with me. My pleasure. And uh, if I can serve you again in the future, don't hesitate to reach out. I might just do that. All right. Well, thank you so much. You take care, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I thought it was funny midway through where he was like, is this what you want? Is this what you were hoping this interview would be? <laughs> it was just so funny because, you know, I, we, with any of these interviews, you know, I usually have a, a set of questions. And I think like these are sort of like the frame for the conversation as I see it. I don't think I asked any of those questions. You know, because, yeah, because it just kind of naturally went in, in all sorts of directions that I didn't anticipate, but just absolutely loved. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly a very, very interesting person. And I feel like he's also just a very good conversationalist. Yeah, so yeah. Everything feels or felt very natural. It did. I mean, it, it, awesome. it really, I mean, it was a fun experience chatting with him because that's just what it felt like. You know, it felt like he and I just sat down at a coffee shop and we're like, oh, hey, <laughs> you know, and just kind of talked about everything because, you know, it, it just, uh, I mean, starting with the screenwriting, you know, I feel like that Twilight Zone episode feels so like relevant to the moment. And it's kind of interesting how that all came about. What did you think of the episode? I really liked it. What I didn't actually I should have looked this up, but what year did the episode actually air? Was it twenty twenty? It was it was twenty twenty. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is kind of crazy how it came out right as this conversation is like hitting I know. the national yeah. conversation. Yeah. Um, but I really liked it. So I he, he actually mentioned this at some point, how science fiction has evolved to talk about maybe issues more because it, yeah. he, he sort of alluded to the fact that sci-fi used to get caught up in its own worldness. Oh, yeah. And now there's this like challenge to like make sci-fi applicable to our world or like yeah. what's going on. But what I miss in a lot of those conversations is I really love old sci-fi shorts mm. um, like you would have on the radio, or yeah. like Ray Bradbury stuff. And I feel like this was the best of both worlds. Like yeah. He packed these huge ideas into this really short, beautiful episode where it's like they ask like two questions. And I, I just thought that was really so well done. Yeah. So hard to do. So. Well, and what I was cr- trying to get to, you know, we were talking about the ending and the resolution of that story. You know, I think that story could go a couple of different ways. You know, this this man in trying to help in some ways destroys the town. And it could be a very, like, be careful what you wish for, uh, kind of a trite story, you know, if it ends that way. But it doesn't. It's like, mm-hmm. you've tried, and now now you stick around and you, you make it right. You find ways to do what you were always trying to do. And I felt like, given that moment in time, the moment of time that we were in, and a couple of weeks ago, you know, when we were recording this interview, it was even more at the forefront of my mind. It just really felt like, here we are, you know, we're standing in a mess and we've been trying, and now is the time that we just push forward and make this work. And it really landed for me in that moment. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Well, and I think the messiness of what happens along the way, like like you said, that could be this sort of like trite, like you shouldn't mess with stuff or like not one person deserves to control things. Yeah. But it's also this like, well, no, like if you don't do anything, then things ha- like stay the way they are. Yeah. And if you try things, it might be messy and you might make mistakes, but then the world has the potential to be like an infinitely better place. And it's like, yeah. so the messiness is worth it. I also like that I this like idea at the heart of it that's like if and this is maybe something I read into it I don't know but I like this idea that there's a question that's asked of somebody who wants to change things yeah like why are you doing this Mm -hmm. because he starts with this basic like I want to make the town better because Mm -hmm. that's what my wife would have done but then it it kind of ends with this like well, you got wrapped up in the fame of it, and now are you still willing to yeah, do the work exactly. without like yeah. the praise, or mm-hmm. are you, do you want to back out now because you realize that these things don't go hand in hand? And it could be trite on a surface level, but I think on a, on a really applicable level, it's profound because mm-hmm. that's asked of us every day. Like yeah. what's happening in our nation right now? Like, are you willing to do the work and never get any of the praise for it? And yeah, I think that's something we should all be asking ourselves. So I really like that. I thought it yeah. was a really well done narrative. I agree. And going into just, you know, how he approaches projects, how he structures things, just his views on what is art, you know, what what are the questions that you're asking in art? You know, I found that to be an interesting avenue to go down. What did you think of that as an artist? No, I mean, I think it, well, first of all, I thought it was interesting the way he differentiated between how one writes or how one uses visual art forms mm-hmm. in different genres. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think clearly he knows what he's talking about. Um, But I thought that was really interesting because it is true that what you want to do with a fantasy story is going to be very different than sci-fi or horror, even though they all like have pretty large Venn diagram space of like shared universes and shared narratives. 
But I thought his use of like, so this is a bit of a spoiler. Hopefully anybody who's listening to this has watched it. Um, spoilers! Spoilers! But when he uses like that giant spider <laughs> yeah. to come out, mm-hmm. I think that's really fascinating because as visual art, it is horrifying. Mm-hmm. But it's also the anger that that guy is yeah. feeling and putting that spider in there. Which again, it, it's a simple thing, but it takes an artist to know that like a spider is going to convey this kind mm-hmm. of anger or like fear yeah. in something. Yeah. Um, because but, it's so base. I mean, it's just, it's such a simple thing, but it's kind of universally makes our skin crawl, you know? Right. So there are right. things that are scarier, but there, there are a few things that hit you quite in the same way, right? Yeah. I mean, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think like even the use of something like a giant insect is so absurd and it falls so outside of what he's done already mm-hmm. because so far he's made these changes in the town, yeah. which are slightly out of the realm of possibility, like removing a tree overnight. Yeah. But they're not so out of the realm of possibility that you think something otherworldly is happening. Exactly. So, yeah. like, to put something like that in is like jarring. Yeah. He made a point in there about how, you know, in, in creating, you're trying to get, you're trying to get your audience to feel the thing that you were feeling. And I, I don't think I'd ever heard it expressed quite so clearly. And I, I really liked that turn of phrase. I like how you put that. Yeah. I mean, it takes, I think that's what separates just a writer from like an artist probably is the ability to do that. When we started moving into his, um, his early sci-fi writing career, and he made the point that he kind of looked around and realized he was the only working black sci-fi author at the time. I mean, that's, I just can't imagine like working under that kind of pressure, really. You know what I mean? Like what what that would mean? That was all. I don't know. It's just one of those things where like it. It's, I'm a little surprised that I can still be shocked, but I was shocked at some of his experiences. You know, going back to his childhood when his parents are getting kicked out of restaurants, or going forward when an editor is changing his character to a white character and changing yeah. changing what you see on the cover. I mean, that's just. How is that a thing that we're hearing about, you know, and this is probably, you know, the, the late 90s, I'm guessing, and not like the 40s and 50s, you know? Yeah, like, right? like in our lifetime. You know, it just, it's, yeah. yeah. No, it's crazy. Well, and I had this moment where he's like talking, he was talking about um, him being basically the only black sci-fi writer, um, which is, yeah, just so hard for me, especially as a, just like a white person to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. But then he also mentioned he was at the cast party for The Return of the Jedi. I know. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. That's so cool. And then I realized as I'm, like, thinking that, I'm like, he was probably one of three black people that were even invited to that. Like, and that's, it's, it's like a self-reflective moment. I mean, I just, I just finished uh, White Fragility. Yeah. Um, and it's that question of, like, the things I love, like Star Wars, are very whitewashed. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that or you kind of like make excuses for it in a way until you're talking to someone Mm -hmm. and, and he mentions like he was the only like black sci-fi writer at the time. And it's just like, Oh my gosh, like, of course, because yeah, there's one black character. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, at least the original. I know. And, you know, moving ahead in his writing career, things like Lion's Blood or or Great Sky Woman, which take a whole different kind of of research. And, you know, the intricacy of writing those kind of books is just amazing. I really liked how he ended there with him talking about just wanting to do that, wanting to show, wanting to show those kind of characters in those kind of settings and what that would mean for his readers. I just I really I really appreciated that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that was really more of like a, you know, historical approach. But one of the things I think sci-fi is so good at, and we touched on this in the interview, is that you can use it, you know, as, a, as an option to talk about things that maybe people don't feel particularly comfortable talking about in a normal book. And I was thinking specifically of an interview we did with Justina Ireland um, about her book, uh, Deathless Divide, which is essentially a story about racism. It's set in the Civil War, but it's dealing with like zombies and it's telling that it's telling that story, but it's using zombies as the way to do that. And, you know, it was interesting to hear her say about that. And I think he kind of agreed with that with that take on it. No, I mean, I think it's really true. I think to me, like Star Trek has always been sort of the quintessential, like using sci-fi to talk about things that are bigger than us. Yeah. And it's no surprise, I guess, that the first like interracial kiss happened on Star Trek. Because I think they have a show where they have created a world where, of course, like the premise of the whole show is that like now we as the human race have moved forward to like meet other races and see how we can bridge those divides. So how could we do that if we were still like splintered in these societal like racial problematic Mm -hmm. things? But, like, they got a lot of flack for that. But yep. in the end, like, they were able to use that as, like, an avenue. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I mean, he's clearly doing it. And I think it's it's a profound thing to think you could take these concepts and put them in new structures to, like, open up people's conversations for it, which I just think I really love. I yeah. Think that's probably part of why I really love sci-fi, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Well, the kind of stories that you can get into, it just opens up so many worlds. I mean, both figuratively and literally, you're able to explore things that would not be easily digested by many who are consuming it if it, if it wasn't sort of under the guise of this is a sci-fi world, you know? So <laughs> right. that's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting tool to use. Anyway, I want to thanks once again to Steve Barnes, who joined me on this fun interview. Uh, He was really generous with his time, and I had a great time chatting with him. You can find more about his books, the different ways to contact him, read his blog. You can find that all at stephenbarneslife.com, so I encourage you to check that out. Sally Jacoby Murphy of the Fred and Harriet Taylor Memorial Library, thank you for joining me as co-host this week. Thanks for asking me. I mean, I am super excited to keep exploring his stuff, because... He's got a new fan. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of House Things. We'll see you next time.